All right. Matthew. Finally, we're coming to our series on the book of Matthew. And as we come to this passage of Scripture that we're looking into this morning, I recall as a child getting a Gideon Bible in the fourth grade. Every kid in the class got it. And so I got mine, and I thought, all right, I'm going to start reading the New Testament. It was just a little pocket-sized New Testament. And I got to Matthew, and I started reading the genealogy with a bunch of names I couldn't pronounce. And I got frustrated and set it aside. A lot of people view Matthew through that lens. They think in terms of this list of names as being something that's a little disconnected, maybe something that they can't relate to. And they wonder, why in the world do you start a book with a list of names? Why are you starting this important discussion about Jesus with such a lengthy list of names? And if we looked at it apart from the rest of the Scripture, that might be our conclusion. But I think it's important that as we embark on our study on the book of Matthew, telling us who Jesus is, we have to look at His lineage. It's important for us to grasp who Jesus is and His right to be Messiah and King. And that's exactly where Matthew begins in his treatment of Jesus. As we look at what Matthew says, we find that, first of all, Jesus is the Savior, Messiah, and King. And for some reason, I'm getting misfires with my uh, apparatus here. It sounds loose. (laughs) But Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, and the King. And that's going to be brought out so clearly as we look at this passage of Scripture. Now think about this for a moment. You are waiting for something. We all know what it is to wait. Sometimes it's waiting for that baby to come. TJ can relate to that. We wait and we wait and we wait and we think, is it ever going to come? Sometimes we wait for maybe that check that's been promised that's coming in the mail. And we go to the mailbox every day and we look for it and we wonder, is it here? Is it here? Do we have it yet? There are many things in our life that we look forward to and that we wait on with anticipation, hoping that maybe it comes today. Well, that was the hope of Israel when it comes to a Savior and a Messiah for thousands of years. You see, the case can be made that a Messiah was promised as early as the book of Genesis. When you go through the Old Testament, you would see that there was a promise of this chosen one of God who would come and deliver Israel from oppressors. And through so many of the prophets of the Old Testament, you would read about this figure, this promised one who was coming. And so hundreds and hundreds of years pass and they don't see the Messiah. By the way, maybe it's important we define what we mean by Messiah. Messiah is 
a term that's used in the Old Testament. Christ is the counterpart in the New Testament. Christ, very simply, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. And this promised one of God, as I said, was one that God declared would come and deliver His people. And so, here, during Matthew's writing of this gospel, was a collection of Jews who were waiting for this Messiah because they were under the thumb of Rome. Rome, as a conquering nation, was in occupation of Jerusalem. And so they were waiting for this deliverer, this one who would come and deliver them from Rome, or so they thought, and give them a release from the oppression that they were experiencing. So here comes Jesus. We're introduced to him. He is identified as the Messiah right out of the gate here in Matthew's gospel the one who had been so long awaited. So look at the first verse. And as Matthew begins to take us through our study, we're going to see that indeed Christ is the promised one of God and that there is certainty that Jesus is this Messiah who was promised. Look at how he frames this in the first book or the first verse of this book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, when we look at Matthew starting this, bear in mind, Matthew is addressing a Jewish audience. He wants to establish with them that, hey folks, this one that you've been waiting for, this one you've been looking for, he is found in Jesus. And you can count on that with absolute certainty. In fact, the reason that Matthew goes into the genealogy, because he's writing to this Jewish audience, they would have known a lineage that the Messiah would have to have. And were Matthew not to start with this list of names, no Jew would have read any further. No consideration would have been given to Jesus. There had to be that line of promise through Abraham and David in order for Jesus to be the Messiah. So here is Matthew identifying him as such. And notice that in bringing up this genealogy, this ancestral trail that leads to Jesus, we find that Jesus is identified as Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at Jesus Christ, some see Jesus Christ as a name, but actually it's a name and a title. In some sense, it's even a double title because of what Jesus means. When we look in Scripture, the name Jesus very simply means Savior. And that's brought out clearly As we look at the 21st verse, flip over a page or down the page, whatever applies, and look at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1. Speaking of Mary, it says, she shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And then the immediate words that follow give us clarity. 
The word for is a word of explanation. And what it's explaining is this, for he will save his people from their sins. That's Jesus. This is the one that we will be studying throughout our time together in the book of Matthew. But he is also the Christ. Christ, as we saw, isn't just a name, it's a title. He is the anointed one of God. He is the promised one. He is the one that had been long awaited and now come. Matthew introduces us to him. Something else we'll see. Matthew identifies the legal tie that Jesus has to the throne. Notice this genealogy is summarized as coming through David and coming through Abraham. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, let me, right out of the gate as we come to this genealogy, explain something to you. Son of does not mean the immediate son of. We would probably more accurately translate it the descendant of. And so, what we'll see as we get into even this list of names that is mentioned a little bit later in this genealogy, we'll understand that these are not an all-inclusive list of the ancestors of Jesus. People were specifically chosen by the Holy Spirit as He inspired Matthew to write this gospel. But the lineage summed up comes through Abraham, the father of the nation, and through David, the great king of the nation. And this is the Jesus that we'll be looking into. Something else we see. In addition to this certainty that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's brought out right there in that first verse, we also see that covenants are fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. When we look at Matthew's statement, the son of David, the son of Abraham, two great covenants are encapsulated in these two names. Now, we're going to reverse the order and go chronologically, but the first covenant that I would like to remind you of that Jesus uniquely fulfills is God's covenant with Abraham. And what we find is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Scripture says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now look at the last part of this promise in the third verse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This covenant that God entered into with Abraham is uniquely fulfilled by Jesus. You see, Jesus is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. It is through Him that we find forgiveness and right relationship with God. It is through Jesus that all the nations of the world are blessed. And that's something we'll see more and more as we go through our study in the book of Matthew, how God opens the door to everyone through the Lord Jesus Christ. The second covenant is the covenant that God entered into with David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, God promised this to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, 
Now, look at this. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, we all know that there has been a lapse in kings sitting on the throne of Israel. When Jesus returns, we did a study through the book of Revelation, and what do we find? He returns as king. He will reign for a thousand years in Jerusalem. The promise that God made to David, uniquely fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at this first verse, it's packed with important truths that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the one who fulfills the covenant of God. Jesus is the one that Israel looked forward to. And yet, when He came among them, they rejected Him. Now, as we move on in the text, we come to Christ's provision as Savior and Messiah. And what we're going to do is look at these groupings of 14. There are three groupings of 14. Dan did a wonderful job singing those. Um, I bet you were afraid I was going to sing the sermon, right? (laughs) Not happening. (laughs) But what we do find as we come to these lists of names, these various points in Israel's history... And as we trace the promise of God from Abraham to Joseph, we're going to see some important things that stand out about these names. And so, rather than focusing on each one of the individual names, what I wanted to do this morning as we come to this or look at some truths, is look at some truths that we find leap off the page at us as we look at each one of these periods of time represented by these people that are mentioned in this passage. Now, the first grouping that we find is from Abraham to David. And what we find, again, isn't an all-inclusive list of every generation that was from Abraham to David. Matthew is selective about the people that he chooses to list. Now, all of us probably have been tempted at some point to go on Ancestry.com or one of the sites that talks about the people in our history, our family history, and maybe see where our roots come from. Some people are pleased. Some people are ashamed. Because when they look at their lineage, they say, wow, this wasn't such a great lineage. (laughs) Maybe I'll just tuck this away and keep it to myself. That's not the case in this passage of Scripture. There are some shameful people in each one of the lists. But to me, what this communicates to us is that in Jesus, God overcomes failure God overcomes sin. And all of these characters from the Old Testament demonstrate that truth with clarity. Look at the list as it begins in the second verse. And in verses 2 through 6, we begin with Abraham. 
Now, Abraham respected, loved as the patriarch of Israel, but when you go into the Genesis account of Abraham, all of his acts were not stellar. He lied. He almost led his wife into an adulterous relationship. He failed to trust God in providing an heir and took matters into his own hands and produced Ishmael, which produced perennial enemies of the people of Israel. Abraham was a man of faith, but he was a man who had flaws in his life, sinful areas of his life that we look back on and we say, wow. You know, I kind of think as Matthew is chronicling all of these people with all of the sin that is brought out by some of these names that are given to us, perhaps he was even thinking of himself. What was Matthew's occupation before he became a follower of Jesus and a writer of this gospel? Tax collector. And by the way, tax collector doesn't mean that he was like an IRS agent. It meant that he was someone who basically bilked people and made profit off of the misery of his people. Tax collectors were notoriously dishonest. And they were considered by the Jews to be the worst of the worst because of what they were doing to their own people. So here is Matthew. He's writing about all of these figures from the past. And perhaps he was thinking about the grace that he had received from God and the forgiveness that he had received as well. Look at the next names that follow, Isaac and Jacob. Again, each one with their own unique difficulties. Isn't it amazing as you read the book of Genesis? The book of Genesis does not whitewash anybody's background. All of the flaws, all of the sin, all of the failures are brought out. And yet, there is God, even in spite of the sinful men, moving forward with His purpose and His plan to lead us to the Messiah. God is able to overcome all. Jacob's name even means what? Anybody remember? Deceiver. Yeah. Deceiver. Notice he didn't use the name Israel. He used the name Jacob. Something else. We find Judah. Now, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel. And we know from Scripture that it is through Judah that the king would come. So this is an important part of the lineage. And so the Word of God is reminding us that the Messiah, the king, comes through the line that God had identified in the Old Testament as the line through which the king would come. But when we look at Judah, once again, we see startling things about cruelty Judah was ruthless at times, and yet here he is mentioned in the lineage of the king. Now, something that really stands out in the book of Matthew are the women who are mentioned. Many times in scriptural genealogies, women are not mentioned, but we find 
four women in this passage who are mentioned. But the issue is, just as the men had their problems, so did these women. Look at what we find as we come to the first one who is mentioned in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, if you remember the story of Tamar, Tamar had married one of Judah's sons. He was wicked and God took his life. She married the next son, according to Levitical law. He was wicked and died. There was a third son in line, but he was too young, and Judah said, well, we'll just wait for him to get a little older. I don't want him to die young. This is the track record, Tamar. And when the son came of age, Judah didn't honor his word. So what did Tamar do? She dressed as a prostitute on a road where Judah was going to go and conduct business. She seduced him, became pregnant, and bore Perez and Zerah. Perez would be a part of the line that God would bless. So then we find a collection of other individuals, and to save time, we're not going to go into each one, but we are going to come to the wife of Salmon, the father of Boaz, because here we meet another woman, and this is Rahab the harlot. Remember, she was a prostitute in Jericho, and she showed faith and took God at His word, and God redeemed her, and even gave her the privilege of being a part of the lineage of the promised Messiah. So that's amazing when we look at the grace of God in that. And then we also find that Boaz married Ruth. Ruth. Now, there's a whole book of the Bible devoted to her. She was a woman of faith. She trusted God, but she was a Moabite. Now, the Moabites, we look at that and say, okay, Moabites, Hittites, mosquito bites, whatever, you know. But there's significance in that because they were perennial enemies of the people of God. And yet, God in His grace works things according to His purpose and His plan to where this woman is included in the lineage of our Messiah. God overcomes everything. In addition to Ruth, we find David will go into his issues in the next grouping. But here's something that stands out to me as I look at this first group of people, that God is greater than our sin, that God's purpose and God's plan cannot be overcome by the wickedness of man. God has a plan that works no matter what. And here's the amazing thing. The promised one, the Messiah, the Savior, would ultimately be the solution for their sin problem. You see, Romans chapter 3, verse 23, says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So here is Jesus. He redeems people. He is the satisfaction of God's righteous requirements. And here's the part of this passage that really stands out to me. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. Now, do you catch that? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Tamar. All of this cast of people who had their sin issues, that sin wasn't immediately judged by God because of his forbearance looking forward to the cross where that sin would be dealt with by their descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. That amazes me as I think about this passage. Verse 26 goes on to say it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Listen, if you have sin in your life and you can identify with the people mentioned in the first part of this passage, Jesus is the justifier. He brings you that right relationship with God by His death on the cross and what is required of us, faith. The text goes on and we come to verses 7 through 10. And as we come to this next grouping of people, we find the catastrophe of a failed kingdom is overcome by Christ. Look at this list and it begins with David. Now, many of you would look and say, well, David, what a great place to start man after God's own heart. But look at the words that follow. He was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And we know her as Bathsheba, right? What right out of the gate is brought up about David? The sin of adultery and the sin of murder. You remember the story. David saw Bathsheba and responded by having her brought to his chamber. He impregnated her. In order to cover up, he sent her home and told Uriah, her husband, who was battling on the field and brought home so that he could go home and be with, with his wife and hopefully cover up the sin that David had entered into. And remember, Uriah blew his plan. He said, I'm not going to go and find comfort with my wife while my men are on the field. So what did David do? He sent Uriah back and gave instructions, put him someplace where he'll be killed. And he was. And yet, God overcomes. He loved and forgave David and made him a part of the line of the son that he would send Christ Jesus. Solomon is mentioned in this text. And when we look at Solomon, we see a man with tremendous potential, remember? He asked God for wisdom, and God gave him wisdom and wealth. And Solomon squandered it. He was a serial adulterer. And in addition to that, he introduced idols into the land to the extent that he even brought idols into the temple. So, Solomon 
although king, was a failed king. When we look at the numbers, we can see that he expanded the territory of Israel. He expanded the wealth. But what really counts, their closeness to God, that was destroyed by the course and the path that Solomon took. Other names are mentioned in this list. When we look, we see an addition to Solomon, Rehoboam. And you remember the story of Rehoboam in the Old Testament. He was the son of Solomon. And he was so greedy and so selfish that he caused the division of the kingdom. The twelve tribes were divided into ten and to two under Rehoboam. So talk about a catastrophe. All that David and Solomon had built blown up by this man, Rehoboam. We find Abijah and Asaph, or Asa, and these were kings who engaged in idolatry and led the kingdom even further astray, Uh, a recurring theme that you find in the books of Kings and Chronicles is they did evil in the sight of the Lord even more than their fathers had done. So there was a progression away from God through so many of these kings. We also find that there were some good kings included in this. Among them would be Hezekiah. And there would be those flashes, those glimpses of good. But then immediately on their heels, like with Hezekiah, came Manasseh who went right back into the sin and the idolatry that was bringing all of this destruction to the kingdom. But it's the name at the end of that list that I want us to look at, verse 11. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the uh, the deportation to Babylon. Now, this is where the story gets very interesting. Yes, you have these failed kings, you have a declining kingdom, and by the way, that decline in the kingdom came precisely in the way that God said it would if they left God and moved into idolatry. And so, here comes Jeconiah, and he took evil to a whole new level, so much so that the prophet Jeremiah had this to say about Jeconiah. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So here is this line that goes from Abraham through David all the way to Jeconiah, and God needs to honor that line, but then this individual, Jeconiah, is so wicked that God says no offspring of His is ever going to sit on the throne. So, did God stop His promise? Was God wrong in what He said? Well, that brings us to the next grouping. The curses are broken in Jesus the Messiah. Look at the 12th verse, and it talks about a deportation. Now, we all know that that was when the Babylonians came and took 
the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and took them into captivity. And we all know that the king during that time was Jeconiah. And Jeconiah was evil, but he was the father of Shelatiel and Zerubbabel. By the way, I always wanted one of our kids to be named Zerubbabel, but Paula wouldn't have it. And we see this list of descendants from Zerubbabel to Joseph. And so we look at this and we say, okay, I'm still remembering what Jeremiah said. So what's going on here? We see two important lines that are mentioned in Scripture. And I'm sorry if you can't see this chart very well. But what we find is the house of David. And we find... Matthew's account, Solomon, it's to the left, and it ends in Joseph, but it goes through Jeconiah. Jeconiah's curse meant that it could not be a blood relative of Jeconiah who sits on the throne, right? That was the curse. But then we look at Luke, and rather than going through Solomon, what does Luke do? He goes through Nathan, and he goes from Nathan all the way down to Mary, So here's God's solution to this curse. Joseph would be the adoptive father of the Messiah, thereby fulfilling the promise that he had made to David that there would be someone who was a descendant of his through his line that would be Messiah. The legal aspect of Jesus' claim to the throne was through the adoption of Joseph. But then Luke resolves the blood relationship to David as a part of the promise because Mary is the biological mother of the Messiah through the virgin birth. And that's why the virgin birth is so important that the bloodline that God had promised from David to the Messiah can be honored. So the only way Messiah could be would be if a descendant of David through a bloodline would be adopted by someone in the legal line of David, Joseph. God overcame the curse. There are many who look at the Gospels and they'll see differences And on the surface, they'll look at it and say, ah, contradiction. But what we truly find is this. God has a plan that takes thought and study and consideration. And that plan isn't always obvious, but that plan is still there. And this is what God did through the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Joseph adopting Jesus, Mary bearing Jesus, that broke the curse of Jeconiah. But you know, as I think about these promises that we find fulfilled by God in Christ Jesus, I see that Jesus not only breaks that dilemma, Jesus does so much more. He breaks the curse of the law. In Galatians chapter 3, starting at the 10th verse, we read, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things written in the book of the law. Now, hold on there for just a second. Wait a minute. What, what that means is, if I can't keep the law with perfection, doing all that's written within it, then I'm under a curse. Well, guess what? That's all of us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are under a curse. So we have to abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them in order to be right with God. But then the text goes on. And it says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. God made another way. And that other way, just as He did with Jeconiah, the other way that God made was through Christ. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us. In other words, bought us out from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In other words, the curse that I deserve was taken upon Jesus Christ when He went to the cross and He hung on the tree. This is what Paul brings out in this text. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, now look at this, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. God, in Christ Jesus, broke the curse. So we stand right with God because of God's provision, the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture shows us important truths about Jesus, but it goes beyond just His lineage. It shares with us the purpose and the plan of God. It, served, it, it, it shows with clarity that God had a purpose and a plan that is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. As we continue in our study in the book of Matthew, you know what we're going to find repeated again and again and again? This was to fulfill the Scripture. Jesus uniquely and completely fulfills all that God had said would be characteristic of the Messiah and it's a road map that shows us Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Savior, the Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this passage of Scripture. Thank You, Lord, for the hope that we have because of Jesus who broke our curse, who in Him justified all of the Old Testament saints who came before Him and whose sin was put on hold until it could be paid for. And then going forward, because of the cross, paying for all of the sin of all people who turn to Him in faith and receive Him as their Savior. God, I would pray that as we continue our study of Jesus, that we would have our understanding of who He is increased and, and, and deepened and that we would grow in our love and appreciation for Him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.